0: there's no one right way to be Asian American. You know, and hearing about the diasporic experiences of others who are trying to grapple with culture, figure out what to keep and carry, what to relate to, these stories are about healing, both for the person that I'm talking to, but they become healing for the audience and healing for me. And I think what has inspired me has just been the commonality and depth of experience that is so very human and universal. Hi, I'm Shin Yi, and I'm a modern minority. Welcome to
1: Modern Minorities. This is the show about work and life, told through the lens of what makes each of us different.
2: I'm Sharon Lee Tony, a Chinese-American girl born and raised in New York City.
1: And I'm Roman Segal, an Indian-American boy who came from Alabama with a banjo on my knee.
2: Through conversations with some really interesting people, we uncover the stories, perspectives, and often unspoken truths about how our guests uniquely experience the world.
1: It doesn't matter where you're from, the color of your skin, or who you love. We're all minorities somehow, but we're no one's model minority.
2: This is a show about all of you, for all of us. Today we're talking to Yi, the civic poet of Seattle who has published over 11 books, most recently one called Verga coming out from Empty Bowl in 2021. She has received a number of awards from other cities as well, including being the Poet Laureate of the City of Redmond. She has also been the Artist Trust Fellow and was shortlisted for a Stranger Genius Award in literature. Not only is Shenyi an amazing artist, and creator, and poet. She also happens to have her own podcast called 10,000 Things, which you can hear on anywhere where you get your podcasts, on Spotify, on Apple Podcasts. Uh, 10,000 Things is produced by Seattle's NPR affiliate station, Q-U-O-W Public Radio. And I had the pleasure of speaking with Shin Lee one-on-one today which is a rarity as Raman usually joins me for these conversations. But I'm actually really glad that Shani and I both had some time to talk directly because I found from our conversation that I could really relate to many of her experiences being a Chinese American woman and as also being someone who is raising biracial children in my own home. And uh, we cover a number of topics from her childhood And where she grew up, to what really formed her now ideas about art and literature and storytelling. Um, And I just really felt like she has a deep, deep passion for connecting communities, connecting cultures, and for drawing out beauty in the most unique ways. So I hope you truly enjoy my conversation with Shin Yi today. Hi, Shinny. It's so great to have you here today. Great to be here. So Shinny, some of us know who you are, and we've either heard you on on your podcast or read about you in one way or another. But I think a lot of our listeners are probably curious to know, where
0: where are you from? I consider myself... Uh, From Southern California, even though I live now in Seattle, Washington and make my home here. Yeah. But I was actually born in the American Midwest outside of Chicago in Decatur, Illinois. And when I was really young, my parents moved us out to the West Coast uh, around the sort of general Los Angeles area and eventually settled in the Inland Empire, kind of Riverside, San Bernardino County area. And that is where I spent basically the first 17 or so years of my life. So those years in Southern California were absolutely formative. It was a non-Asian American community in which I grew up. Wow. So you've, I mean, that's three
2: regions or three locations in in your lifetime so far. And certainly two big ones earlier in your childhood, which is pretty pretty amazing. And I I definitely want to hear about that in a second, but I'm just curious to know, because a lot of us who are listening and even me, myself, when people ask that question, there's actually an underlying question, right? So do you ever get asked, where are you really from? Yes.
0: (laughs) In all the ways people love to guess. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Yes. So I am the daughter of Taiwanese immigrants who uh, were born during the Japanese occupation and lived during, you know, kind of Chiang Kai-shek's reign in Taiwan and under the White Terror. Wow. So my parents left Taiwan in probably would have been their late 20s, early 30s. And my father, for instance, didn't go back for a very long time until after uh, martial law ended. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm
2: -hmm.
0: Yeah. So very strong Taiwanese identity.
2: Wow. And you mentioned when you were growing up, you were growing up in a community that wasn't very Asian-American, right?
0: hmm yeah, yeah.
2: So where exactly was that? You said, you'd say most of your childhood was in Southern California, LA area?
0: Uh, actually, south of there. So, you know, that's where we kind of got started initially, but my parents eventually bought a home in High Grove, California, okay. which is a small and unincorporated town between Riverside and San Bernardino counties, which the community itself was like, Built on or very near a landfill, you know, in an area where uh, there were a lot of orange groves and like citrus farming for a long time, and it was a it was a strange place. There was a historic Chinatown in the Riverside area that uh, you know kind of got started in probably the 1900s, but. There came a point where there was only one bachelor resident that was left and lived there for like 30 years. And then he passed away. And then in 1974, the city of Riverside decided to completely destroy and raise to the ground the Chinatown that was there. And I was born in 1975. So, you know, when we eventually came to this area, uh, there were no remnants or, you know, traces of that place Mm -hmm. and that history and yeah. it was, it was strange, you know, it's like I grew up on a street called Mandarin Way and, you know, grew up around all these citrus groves, which were, you know, farmed and cultivated by Chinese immigrants. And yeah, there was just an absence of the Chinese American contribution to history mm-hmm. and to place. And so it was a very strange place to grow up. Riverside, High Grove, primarily kind of mixed race, brown and black, predominant language was Spanish. So I grew up speaking a lot of Spanish and Hmm. just it was just a very kind of working class area gritty. And is not, I think, what people expect when I say, I grew up in Southern California. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Like I can remember going to college in Boston. And, you know, people just having these wild ideas of, oh, if you grew up in California, you probably surfed a lot and your life was Beverly Hills 90210, (laughs) uh, which also didn't have any Asians. (laughs) Right, right, right. right. Yeah, yeah. My particular experiences as an Asian American growing up in Southern California were pretty atypical.
2: That's so fascinating. And you know so much about the area before you moved there, like all the history that you just shared where did you get that from? Was that your own passion and your own interest to look into that? Or were you taught that in school? Like, how did you know that there was a former Chinatown? And
0: It was not taught in school. Okay. I think I was very aware that in the downtown area, there was like a Chinese pagoda that was put up at some point by the Taiwanese people. And I didn't understand if that was like a marker of like a sister city relationship or what the history was. And you know, Riverside was such a weird place for me that I left when I was 17 and I've never moved back. But I will say probably about 10 or 15 years ago, when I got really more interested in local histories and histories related to Chinese Americans, which really came about from living in Seattle, where there is a strong legacy of Chinese American history and activism. I got really curious about what that was like in Riverside. And so I went and visited on a trip home the Riverside Historical Museum and talked to a local historian who referred me to a couple of books that had been um, researched and written that were about the archaeological excavation of what had been the former Chinatown uh, Riverside site. And those were things that I think came about maybe in my late, late teens or after I left. like There has been A kind of initiative to quote unquote save Riverside's Chinatown because the kind of empty lot where the Chinatown was is just like fenced in. And uh, there have been, I think, some movements to try and preserve that as a historical place and to fight development on that land. And so it's something that I have gotten to know as a history after leaving that place. And it was actually necessary for me to leave that place to understand it.
2: That's so amazing as someone who. So, I grew up in New York's Chinatown, New Mm. York City Chinatown. Mm -hmm. Also, a ton of history, right? And like has been around since the beginning. So, unlike the one in Riverside, it's just kind of expanded. Yeah. But I moved out to LA for a couple of years. I'm back now um, on the East Coast, kind of upstate. So, I'm not living in the city anymore. Okay. And it's, I remember the day that McDonald's opened up on Bowery Mm. Street in New York City. And it was the first time that anything non-Chinese existed in Chinatown. Like something very American arrived. Yeah. Mm. And I remember thinking I must have been, I don't know, maybe middle school at the time. So I was old enough to be aware of these things, but not really old enough to predict the future. Mm -hmm. But I remember feeling like this was going to change everything for the neighborhood. And and the locals were excited because (laughs) it just felt like... America had arrived in our in, in a little yeah. you know enclave that was very in touch for you know probably hundred like not not hundreds but yeah you know tens of of decades yes and now when I go back there are so many non Chinese places right it's right. like it's almost it's. It's fascinating to see how you can call, you can use the word gentrification, whatever they call it, right? But how the community has really evolved and changed Mm -hmm. in a way where when I do see some old architecture or a a temple that's still there and granted a little dusty and the paints, you know, peeling off and things, it feels like I'm looking at a piece of history when really that Mm -hmm. location Hasn't been around for very, very long, and it's yeah. just listening to that story of you know a whole a whole community yeah. was just removed, and all you had left was the, the pagoda or whatever you were looking at as like the the marker of something that was there before, and then it was painted over, you know, by by other things that came after. It's it is it's just layers of stories and and evolution. Mm-hmm. Bring me back though to like brown and black communities, Spanish being the predominant language and then you being the Chinese-American girl in the midst of all of that. What was that like growing up and going to school with folks that didn't look like you?
0: Yeah, I mean, there was a definite cultural misfit. I think I felt it very early on from the first moment. I had an older brother, which I think... It didn't completely ease that sense of aloneness or being different, but yeah, you know, he kind of preceded me. And I remember feeling so aware of that when I entered kindergarten for the first time. Hmm. And at that point in my life, I had gone by my Chinese name for like the first five years of my life and predominantly spoke. Taiwanese at home with my mother. She, as an immigrant, she had not learned English growing up yeah. and as part of her studies. So when she came to the United States, she had to learn English and she didn't really have that knowledge. And so there was a lot of Taiwanese spoken at home in the household at that point. And I went by my Chinese name. And then I entered kindergarten, and nobody looked like us or spoke our yeah. language. And that was when I actually made the switch to using uh, my American name that my father gave to me, and you know, became aware of like the ways in which I wasn't the same as the other mm-hmm. children, the food that I ate, the name that I had, the language that we spoke you know, whether or not my teachers or the other children were aware of how deep those differences ran, I was very aware of them. And I think that that always gave me a sense of uh, cultural displacement. I never felt at home in Southern California, even later when there were maybe more Asian Americans in junior high or high school. I think there was just this deep sense that we had been like I don't know, parachuted into Riverside, you know, and and that (laughs) uh, there was so much that didn't make sense in terms of the possibility of belonging to a place like that. Mm -hmm. So I would say that I always felt a certain sense of restlessness. And, you know, I mean, I think a lot of Southern California, it kind of gets lost in a little bit of a cultural vacuum. Like I think of cities like Seattle or San Francisco or New York and Boston, those being cities that are very culturally rich in the arts and deep in literature as well, kind of like bookstores and reading culture and, you know, kind of cultural complexity and depth. And I think I felt like growing up in Southern California, there was maybe a greater fascination or affinity with like television and the film industry and popular media images and the ways in which those would influence people's behaviors and kind of like popular mainstream culture. And that didn't make sense either as like a weird looking Asian American girl (laughs) with glasses growing up in 1980s Southern California, where people are in the nineties in high school, really into Beverly Hills, 90210 and and like mm-hmm. blonde you know, blue eyes, like, you know, yep. the kind of beauty standards that we're already surrounded with growing up around that in Southern California was even more impactful, right. I would say, as far as not understanding a sense of uh, one's own cultural beauty and or being enough. Yeah. Mm-hmm.
2: Right. Did you ever do anything to fit in?
0: Well, I, I mean, like... I. Probably fashion. <laughs> fashion yes. is kind of the easiest way to do that. Hairstyles, contact lenses, getting a suntan, you know, engaging in the behaviors that are, yeah, going to the beach and, you know, getting tan, but, you know, lay, right. laying out to this day yep. kind of like remains yep. a thing, even though I am so neurotic about freckles and getting yeah. more freckles on my face yeah. because on the Asian side of things, if you're too brown or if you have freckles, yep. you might as well have like come off the farm. I was going to just ask like,
2: <laughs> what did mom say about all of that? Right? Yeah. Like you're you're out there getting brown, getting sunspots, getting freckles. And yeah. that's the anti-standard. That's the anti-beauty yeah. thing in Asian culture. Right? So, I know.
0: Yeah. I know. And I think those things didn't show up until I was a little bit older. And you know, you know like the era before like a lot of sunscreen and right. skin cancer knowledge and... Yeah, before the ozone was like breaking down. (laughs) It was like I think back then it was like, "Shiny, you shouldn't like use like aerosol hairspray because that's destroying the ozone." But it was like way before climate change, you know? Yeah, before anyone even cared or knew about it. Exactly, it was all like so abstract. So yeah, I definitely had these tensions of kind of like, what is like I don't know, popular life, you know, or or what what are you fitting into by way of like a Western culture. And then like the influences of like the home life. or in- mm-hmm. Yeah, like those things definitely pulled me in different directions and have been something that I think I've had to navigate for most of my life.
2: Definitely. What was it like when friends came over? Did you ever invite friends come over for dinner or to visit or to sleep over?
0: That wasn't really a part of, I think, my cultural experience. My parents were not really interested in having my young friends over to the house because they were often not Asian. And I think what I also noticed or understood is like, you know, sometimes there were children who were curious about what my life were like, like, especially in junior high, who would just like show up at the door. Yeah, Boys in particular. I remember a couple of boys that, you know, were kind of a part of my friend's group who were curious about who I was because I think I did come from a family that was very protective. I'd think stripped actually. Yeah. When there were parts of me that felt sometimes like under house arrest. Yeah. <laughs> you know, so yeah. So, you know, my friends, I think male friends in particular found this intriguing. Like what what's happening? You know? And so I can remember these two boys, Ross and Israel, coming over to my house, just probably like riding their bikes or their skateboards, like from like three miles away or something. Cause they just wanted to like, you know, drop in. See it. Exactly. Yeah, totally. And, And you know, so my mom's this visual artist. And so a lot of our house is like covered in her tapestries and her paintings and ceramics works that she made. And you know, it's like, we didn't really buy art. The reason that our house wasn't ugly and had any sense of beauty was because of my mother's aesthetics and ability to to make a thing beautiful through actually making beauty herself. And yeah, one of the tapestries that she had that was something original. It wasn't like something that she copied or you know that she was imitating. She actually made this like fantastic tapestry that was like a self-portrait of herself nude. Over my parents' bed that had like, you know, Western cherubic angels and like a white blonde <laughs> lover right. embracing her with her like flowing auburn hair. You know? Yeah. And I remember these two little boys coming over. They're all little. They're like, you know, 13. They're like prepubescent right. or you know, yeah. just whatever. And them seeing that and like the shock, you know, like the shock of like seeing a nude person, a nude Asian person, and like really flipping out. And just, you know, because my family was different in so many ways. I think our aesthetic orientation, the kind of privacy uh, and boundaries that my father really wanted enforced. And Mm -hmm. yeah, I, I think... We were very private family because, frankly, there were a lot of issues around control and trauma. Yeah. And so I think we kept a lot of the outside outside where people wanted it to stay. And so for me, it was a very lonely and isolating childhood. And when I was able to leave California, I took the first opportunity to get as far away as I could.
2: Yeah. And so mom was an artist. I love how you described that she created beauty that was all around your home. Yeah. I love that. What did dad do?
0: Dad did a lot of things. You know, the early part of my life, he was a used car salesman. And that is an unusual profession for an immigrant with a master's degree in education. (laughs) But uh, the story behind that is that uh, before he came to the United States from Taiwan, He was a tour guide to wealthy Americans and tourists that would come through Taiwan. And on some of the tours that he conducted, he met a very wealthy American businessman who owned a used car empire in Southern California. And so I think, you know, my father came here to the United States with the idea that when he landed in the Midwest, he'd be able to get this master's degree in educational administration and then work in a professional field. And this is, you know, in the 1970s, there was still a lot of bias and prejudice, and he landed in a place that was not terribly hospitable to, to Asian Americans. And so I think when he finally moved the family out to, you know, um, the West Coast, there was this sense of like wanting to try and find work with somebody that he knew that had been kind to him in Taiwan. So he did that for probably like what was maybe like the first 12 or 13 years of my life while we also ran and operated a lot of different home businesses out of our house. Mm -hmm. And then there was a point where that wasn't the culture that he really wanted to be a part of. And he knew that. So there were a lot of years where he was trying to figure out how he was going to um, support our family because my mother was just a stay at home mom. So the burden was really upon him as like the patriarch uh, and the breadwinner to figure things out. So he actually began teaching Mandarin Chinese language as an adjunct at like the Cal state universities and like university of California's that were in our area, like at Riverside or San Bernardino. And he began to kind of develop this, uh, this experience uh, and expertise of teaching language, which, you know, seemed like uh, natural enough, like like he could make that leap. And so for many years, he became a freeway flyer or an adjunct. He never achieved the kind of long-term contractual status that he wanted so much from an employer. Mm -hmm. He also did a lot of work with bringing international students from Taiwanese and Chinese universities to his universities where he was working. Mm -hmm. I feel like the kind of last the last act of like a lot of his work uh, professionally was as an educator. He's in his 80s now and he, yeah. he's, his work now is as an interpreter for like the legal system or for the medical system. And he's really happy doing that, um, which is interesting because had he found that earlier in his life, I think that probably would have been more fulfilling. I think that early on though, there were a lot of standardized tests that uh, he would have had to pass to be able to do that kind of work. And as an immigrant with a different sensibility about language, those were very opaque processes that were hard to navigate and to get to the other side.
2: That's amazing, though. He's had such a journey of different things, and it sounds like he's settling. He, he has settled into what gives him the most joy in that way and, and it's also sounds like he's made a big impact with his education as well as with kind of cross-cultural relationships in that way.
0: Yeah, I think uh the kind of work that he does as an interpreter, translator, or advocate, those all really grew out of, I think, his longing for having more allies and accomplices when he was a new immigrant to this country, not able yeah. to figure out what kinds of support and resources were available. So I think it's a way in which he can rewrite uh, or or heal some of the wounds that he's accumulated and to feel a deep sense of purpose or helping and serving others. I think it's very complicated and entangled in his identity, like the place between getting what he needs and kind of reworking, well, helping others, but then kind mm-hmm. of like revisitation of his past and transforming it in some way. Uh, I think some of it is conscious and a lot of it is unconscious, but I think if at this point in his life, he is able to find a thing that gives him a sense of purpose that's really beautiful, but right. some of us walk through our entire lives as if it were a dream yeah. and don't find that sense of purpose. And we just don't find it. Yeah. It's so true. Yeah. We don't even know what questions to ask. Yeah. So true. Yeah. What did you want to be when you grew up? Uh, you know, I, I wanted to be a music journalist, like really at one point, And I also want very specific. And I also want to be a pop singer. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes. I thought a lot about like being like a DJ, <laughs> like yeah. a music DJ. Right, uh, yeah. yeah. But there was, I think a real love for things related to pop culture and music. From like a really early age, I was like, I I really loved reading the journalism in Rolling Stone and Spin Mm. Magazine and a lot of like British magazines about like music. And I listened when I was a young person to K-Rock, this kind of indie new wave station out of Los Angeles. And yeah, I did singing when I was young throughout like high school, part of college and just music was always like this thing that I thought was really interesting and it is kind of adjacent to poetry and creative writing. And, um, yeah, that was kind of what interested me in, in my younger years. Yeah.
2: So how did the, how did the interest go from music into poetry? When did you discover a love for poetry or when did you start writing poetry?
0: I started writing poetry when I was like relatively young. I mean, even back in like elementary school, I had, I get pulled out of classes to to like work with a special teacher that would give me creative activities. And I think later on junior high, high school, I was always very interested in reading and writing poetry. And in high school, I had some great teachers that introduce me to poets that I still value and go back to today. Yeah, I remember that the musical accompanist, the pianist, who accompanied my vocal jazz ensemble. He actually gave me a book that was written by Rainer Rilke, called Letters to a Young Poet mm. in my last year of high school. And yeah. that was a really powerful, short book about yeah, what it is to be compelled to be a poet and an artist and to really center that in one's own life. And I think that was a very important book to me as a young person in terms of, yeah, helping me to understand the kind of life that I might want to orient to and live. It wasn't really until like my college years that I started taking serious creative writing workshops and I was really, you know, interested in music, but I didn't have the skill or the theory or the proficiency or the confidence to really go in that direction. And poetry is similar in that it is a discipline and uh, art that involves voice, you know, and also like uh, lyrics and writing, storytelling. So, you know, I, I don't think of them as, as being so unrelated, but it was like pretty natural or easy to kind of make that shift. Almost like, you know, years later, I was studying anthropology in a doctoral program and I decided that wasn't the right field for me and shifted over to like museum studies and oral history. Like I think a lot of things that I'm interested in lie next to one another and actually are, are very porous and permeable in terms of how they relate to different disciplines. And so felt very natural to move over to uh, writing and storytelling. But I mean, also now, I sometimes engage in singing. I take voice lessons. I- you do? So do you perform still? Every once in a while, I do. I mean, I do it rather quietly and might not tell people. And <laughs> like when we did an event for the podcast, season one, uh, back when it was still the Blue suit. Yeah, uh, we closed that live event show by me joining Tomo Nakayama on stage to sing like backup vocals for one of his songs. And I didn't tell anybody that I was going to do that publicly except for like my internal podcast team. (laughs) Yes. I love these. I love the hidden, the
2: secret talent, the secret agent (laughs) type of talent that you have. (laughs) When you discovered that you wanted to be a poet and you told your parents, how did they react to that?
0: I don't know that I told my parents in any sort of formal way. I think they always, you know, wanted me to be like a nutritionist or a teacher or a lawyer. And I think like, you know, as they watched my progress in high school and I was not a straight A student and I took a lot of arts classes, I think they were like, hmm. We're not sure if we should worry about her or not. And then I went away to school far away, which I think it was probably hard for them to feel a sense of control Mm -hmm. in that. And they knew that I was going to major in English, whatever the hell that meant. I guess she could be a teacher. And then there was a lot of pressure from them to continue and get a master's degree and not take off any time. And I think for me, it was like, well, you're not paying for this anyways. If this is important for you, I'm picking what I want because you put a lot of pressure on me to go to school in general. Yeah. And so I picked that I was going to go to an MFA writing program at the Jack Kerouac School of Disembodied Poetics, which is a program that was founded in the 1970s and housed in a, a, a Buddhist college in Boulder, Colorado. So, so my parents knew that I was like going on kind of like an artsy path, right. you know, and I eventually left Europa to finish my degree at the School of the Art Institute of Chicago. Like they knew I was a little bit weird. I wasn't like my brother who went to medical school. Like they oh. probably not ever so he been became the to-
2: doctor, huh? The older brother. Exactly. He
0: was dutiful, you know, and <laughs> upwardly mobile. And I think for my parents, yeah. they've always had a little bit of trouble explaining to other people what I do. And it wasn't probably until my first book came out in 2003 uh, and I was touring and I, I traveled to Taiwan with my father and I presented my work at this university where he was present I think, like, at the point that I started publishing books for my parents, it became a kind of feeling like, oh, that can be a career for her. It's not just right. a hobby. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm.
2: Like, she's made it. And yeah. And I bet, especially with that, the tour that was in Taiwan at the university is kind of that proof point for him, right? It's that social proof of. Yes my daughter's on stage presenting her work and she's got an audience of people from a community that I'm familiar with and that I trust. Yeah. And they are honoring her. Yeah.
0: Yeah. It's in this context of like the academic and, you know, the acceptable, you know, uh, for, yes, community of students or scholars, you know, that kind of stuff. So outward markers that are recognizable. Like, like, I don't know that it would mean anything to him that I have this title as Civic Poet of Seattle right now. Right. I think he'd just be like, what does that mean? Do you get paid money? You know, yeah. <laughs> not, not, to, yeah. not to, you know, oversimplify how my father right. might react or not, but I, I think they're just like these things and he's like, you're a poet laureate of Redmond. What's that mean? They gave yeah, you a know, title? Like
2: <laughs> it's so
0: true. Yeah, but books.
2: actually, and, and I'm, I'm curious. So Civic Poet of Seattle, you mentioned that title and that is your role. Mm-hmm. What does that mean? What is what comes with that role and, and what 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 does it take to get there? Like yeah. do you apply for that? Do they recruit you? Do they like how does it work? Is it like a job interview?
0: <laughs> yeah. So it, it differs by cities and states. It's not the same yeah. for every every kind of municipality. But in the case of the city of Seattle, they had like an open application. Other cities do nominations as well, Mm -hmm. but basically I and other candidates, you know, sent in a portfolio of work, kind of like resume and some ideas about what I might like to do if uh, given the the honor for like a two-year term, what are the ways in which I would serve as an ambassador to poetry and to uh, you know do poetry activations in the city that could engage uh, community members that might not naturally be interested in poetry and to basically just champion Seattle poets as well. So for me, it is not a platform for me to be like, look at what I make or look at what I do. It's really about finding ways to share the diversity of poetic voices in Seattle. And so like, One of my first projects when I stepped into the role was to curate uh, a digital campaign of 30 days of Seattle poetry for KUW Public Radio that was on their website. And then I did weekly broadcast segments uh, specifically with BIPOC and other diverse poets um, that had these stories that I wanted to tell to elevate and amplify their work. So, yeah, I went through, you know, a kind of normal panel interview process to get through appointments and then, yeah, yeah, that I stepped into the role. (laughs) Yeah.
2: Amazing. I didn't even realize as someone who isn't a poet (laughs) or in literature, I didn't even realize that there were roles like that, you know, that there were people appointed in, in these types of roles. And I think it's pretty incredible that you've been recognized for your work in this way and celebrated and can continue on to serve the community with your, with your art and your creations.
0: Yeah, I, I feel pretty honored, you know, to have the role because, you, you know, years ago, I was like the poet laureate for the city of Redmond, which I didn't even live in. It's on the east side. It's where Microsoft right. is. And it was yep. like a nice kind of like uh, practice, I, I, I think, or
2: first-, first <laughs> A warm-up. Yeah, was a, a little... warm-up
0: to yeah. kind of understand what are the roles of a public poet. And, you know, during that time, I kind of treated that appointment as like almost an artist in residency where- I used the budget that I was given to do some public art projects and to make some objects. And, you know, I also curated programs related to poetry, both contemporary and ancient. And one of my big projects was actually writing a poem related to the city's relationship to its tree canopy and watersheds, animating Hmm. that poem with a collaborator, a filmmaker named Michael Barakat, and then having it projected on the back of City Hall in December during kind of like one of their civic festivals related to like lights and holidays. And it was this piece that was about, yeah, uh, the city's relationship to environmental stewardship and was a really interesting experiment for me in thinking about how poetry can live and exist in the public space and interact with people. So yeah, I'm really excited to have those kinds of opportunities to to make my work on a bigger scale and to do larger type art activations. Um, yeah. Yeah, that's a lot of fun for me. I was an event producer and curator for like 20 years and did a lot of fun events uh, producing for Atlas Obscura for four years. Just really love bringing people together to share aesthetic experiences that create a sense of belonging that's really important to me.
2: That's so great. And you're involved in so many things. Like I'm kind of in my head. I'm like, what do we talk about next? Because we can talk about ten thousand things, which is your incredible podcast. You also told me before we started rolling that you've got two books coming out this fall, Mm -hmm. which is pretty amazing. And we'll make sure we we put all the pre order links into the show notes um, for everybody. And then next year you've got a completely different thing coming out, not poetry (laughs) related, right? But a microdosing guide. So. Where do you want to, I mean, I guess we can talk about all four of those, but what mm-hmm. would you like to take next? Cause I'm curious about all of them and like kind of how, how these things come about and also how you par- personally even balance all of these. Cause you, you really do have a full plate.
0: Yeah. I mean, I'm excited to talk about the podcast with a fellow podcaster. I think that's a good place to start. Yeah. Okay. Let's go there. <laughs>
2: What inspired this? I mean, you guys have been doing it now for a couple seasons and mm-hmm. continuing to grow and definitely like, you know, high in the charts and growing in popularity. Sure. How did that start? And and I guess maybe also podcaster to podcaster, like mm-hmm. what has inspired you most about it?
0: Yeah. So the way that it started. Let's see, KUOW had this like open call for pitches for podcasts from the community in 2021, like summer 2021. And Mm -hmm. it was a period of time where we were, you know, maybe a year into the pandemic or so at that point. And a lot of things had happened. Like the Atlanta spa shootings happened. yep, And the January 6th insurrection happened. And just, it was a very dark time. For me personally, feeling the rise of anti Asian hate crime, I'm raising like a mixed race child and trying to figure out how to help them navigate places so that they don't feel a sense of unsafety being mixed race and a lot of things were coming up for me at that time. I found it very hard to write or be creative and There was just this darkness for me, especially the kinds of stories that like, you know, you open up your Twitter feed and you're seeing like an autoplay video of an elder, a Chinese elder getting their face bashed in or kicked, right? Like it was just such a hard, hard time. It was a terrible
2: time. Yeah. Really? Yes. Yes.
0: Yes. And I think for Asian women, it was really hard too. And I felt really so deeply the need for different stories about Asian American experience. And a thing that had been sticking with me, sticking to me was that Randy Kim is uh, the Congressman Eddie Kim from New Jersey is actually, he is the namesake of the first version of my podcast, which is called Blue Suit. He uh, was photographed in a viral image of uh, wearing a blue suit Picking yep. up like garbage on the Capitol Rotunda totally. after the insurrection, we, we
2: all remember that. We, yeah, all, we remember all remember it. that image. Yeah, that, it total. it
0: was like burned into my memory, and I was mm-hmm. like, "Who is this congressman?" <laughs> you know, like, and I was really curious about like his leadership. You know, kind of like the way that I get nerdy about like Obama and leadership, and just kind of like yeah. what are his values, yeah. what is he up to. So I followed his Twitter. And, you know, I was fascinated to learn that the Smithsonian Museum asked him to donate his blue suit to their museum collections as a way for them to tell another story or angle or perspective that came out of that January 6th experience and day. And, you know, so he was, you know, this, the suit was becoming this kind of legendary object with this story That was so much bigger, (laughs) you know, and I, as somebody who has studied museums and has spent a lot of time writing about like art and objects and monuments, it really stuck with me as a story that had so much to say. And I thought I'd write a poem about it. But like, as time went on, I realized that what I thought I wanted actually was like a story series in which I could talk to Asian American activists leaders, but also artists, because I think artists practice activism and leadership in really interesting and subtle ways that are innovative. And that was the series that I pitched to KEOW about the thing that I wanted to build and make. And before I even pitched, I knew an editor at KEOW that I'd worked with many years ago on like a storytelling event. And I asked him, Do you think this is something you all would be interested in reviewing? Should I spend any time trying to, like, develop these story ideas. And he was like, yeah, I I think you should submit. And I did. It was piloted along with maybe seven other podcast ideas. And then it was commissioned for a full season. And we just finished our second season uh, publishing it uh, just, I guess, at the end of June. And your question was, what has inspired me about it? You know, when I started putting together the stories in the first season, And this extends into kind of like how I've curated the stories for the second season as well. I always felt like this was a series about that there's no one right way to be Asian American. And it was, I think, in many ways, a kind of series um, of stories that could have been very powerful for me as a young person, not wanting to grow up to be a doctor or a lawyer, but as somebody who had these kind of creative inclinations or uh, interdisciplinary uh, passions that I wanted to bring together in different ways. I think also what's been powerful for me has been, you you know, and hearing about the diasporic experiences of others who are trying to grapple with culture, figure out what to keep and carry, what to relate to, identity, that these stories are about healing you know i think both for the the subject uh the person that i'm talking to but they become healing for the audience and healing for me as somebody who is often i think um chose shows right an art form that is more opaque in which as a poet i didn't have to be vulnerable or really say a whole lot about my perspective for a long time And I think the experience of engaging with stories uh, from people who are choosing to be vulnerable and open-hearted with me, that has really changed my own sense of poetic possibility and narrative possibility Mm. and helped me to go deeper in my own stories and to be a little bit more courageous. And so I think what has inspired me has just been um, the commonality and depth of experience that is so very human and universal.
2: I love that answer. I think, you know, we, we started our podcast at the beginning of COVID. So as all of the anti-Asian events happened, it was interesting to be having conversations with people that weren't only Asian because we, you know, we, we center on all minority experiences, but having a platform where we were engaging with people, usually weekly, sometimes even more depending on our recording schedule. Yeah. And then watching the world implode around us. Right. It's like, yeah. And so we've been doing it now for gosh, over three years and Mm -hmm. just like you, like season after season, I think we don't really measure seasons, but if we were to, I think we're like technically in season five or something like that, (laughs) which, which is a long time.
0: Yes.
2: (laughs) And what keeps us going is every time I turn on the mic and I hit record, I walk away with a completely new and fresh perspective. Yeah. And, or I walk away feeling even more connected to humanity. Yeah. Right. Cause even as you're talking, like I, there's so many commonalities. I'm also Chinese American. I'm also a mom of biracial children. Like Mm -hmm. as you're literally telling me how you're feeling about the world, I'm like, yeah, I get that. I'm with you. Like I am in your exact shoes Mm -hmm. in in so many ways. And then at the same Mm -hmm. time, I'm like, whoa, I had no idea there was such a thing as a civic poet of Seattle, (laughs) you know what I mean? Like (laughs) learning so many things as well. And Mm -hmm. It is really interesting when you open yourself up to drawing out stories from other people mm-hmm. because it's a different practice than creating or professionally I'm a marketer and so mm. a lot of what I do is like figuring out well how does a brand communicate right like how do how do audiences want to hear things but just sitting down and getting to know someone in this way is so intimate and yeah and I've really loved it as well like I I especially love having other podcasters on the show because <laughs> I just feel like like we're, you know, we're, we're so, we're, we're so used to, or I'm assuming you're so used to being the one asking the questions. Like I love hearing your answers because you're answering the questions as, as someone who asks a lot of those questions, yeah. if that makes sense. <laughs> so it's, it's a it's a really, it's a really poetic thing, as you would say. So that's really great. I want to hear more about two things or three things, actually, because I do want to hear about all three of your books, but it's interesting. So Raman, who isn't here, my co-host and everyone who listens often knows he is a huge comics fan. Like he actually has another uh, podcast called Quarantine Comics, and a lot of um a lot of his favorite graphic uh, novelists have been on the show. So like Jean L- Lun Yang has yeah. been on with us. Mira Jacob, I don't know if you know her, but she's amazing. Yeah, I've seen that book. Yep. Yeah. Like just really, and I've gotten to know them too. I'm like, oh, like, cool. These are like, these are really amazing, talented people. Yeah. So you have haiku comics coming out this fall. Yes. Or, or like a, a comic about haiku. Like tell us more about that. Like that seems like a, a slightly different format than what you've published before.
0: Yeah. So that's a project that I'm doing in collaboration with a Latinx artist and comics uh, artist who's down in Oregon named Justin Roof. Justin and I worked together through this arts incubator program outside of Portland years ago. And when I started thinking about the idea of putting together a haiku comics collection, I actually approached him to see if he would be interested in illustrating uh, the the haiku that I write, uh, because I knew that he would do this sort of phenomenal job, the kind of origin of working in this particular form was that during the pandemic, I took a haiku comics class here in Seattle online with this graphic novelist named David Lasky. And David Mm -hmm. had been experimenting um, with putting together this form of like, you know, these short three line poems with four panel comic that would have like a silent beat embedded somewhere in like this, you know, four or four frames basically. And so it would kind of break out the structure of the lines of these poems into, into kind of frames that could be like images or abstractions of kind of like a feeling. So I took this, maybe it was like a six or eight week class and I, I loved it. I loved this idea of pairing images with the words and in, in a very kind of, I don't know, compatible way. And I think what I knew was like, I had not spent a lot of time cultivating my drawing or uh, Mm -hmm. illustrating kind of skills over the years because I'm interested in other kinds of arts. And so I felt like it was going to take a lot of time to be able to really hone that skill, to be able to make them at the quality I wanted. And at the same time, I had all these ideas about how they could be storyboarded or, you know, look on the page. And so I asked the help of this friend and I feel so lucky That Justin said yes, because as part of this project, I asked him probably to illustrate about 108 of my poems. And that's like a big undertaking. That's like six months of work, if not more. And uh, he agreed to it. And it's a project that we've worked together for, gosh, maybe like a little under a year, I would say. So, yeah, even though these are kind of like standalone panels of sequential art that, you know, tell the shape of like a specific column or image or experience, they are sequenced in this book in such a way that the book is really about that experience of life during pandemic, you know, sheltering in place, uh, dealing with uh, violence and, and the horror of living in an urban environment during that period of time, the boredom, you know, uh, that a lot of people experienced, uh, the challenges of like raising a young child, uh, during that time and like managing digital learning. Yeah. It is really a book that is like this slice of like this couple of years of just like working through this unprecedented time in history. And, uh, the title of the book, less desolate, it comes from this poem that talks about just like the loneliness of this period of time. And, uh, if, a translator colleague of mine had many years ago given me a book of his own research where he went and stayed with and and studied uh, these Chinese hermit monks who are Taoists who live in like the distant mountains of China where like no man goes to visit them basically. And, you know, like reading these stories about these hermits and their extraordinary lives, there was this feeling for me of being less alone and less desolate. And so... That is where the title of the book comes from. And it is a collection that is, I think, in the spirit of a a lot of my work, which is about interdependence and connection to people and universal experiences. It is a collection that is about desolation, like my desolation and everybody else's desolation during that period of time. But it's also this experience of being less desolate. And definitely in that collaboration with my artist, Justin, I think there is this feeling of us going through it together and feeling that heaviness that could sometimes be transmuted because we knew that we were not alone because we were talking to each other. Mm -hmm. Yeah.
2: Yeah. Yeah. I I know I definitely at that time, I mean, all of us, right? We were at home and juggling so many things. Like you mentioned digital learning and Zoom, just even pivoting to the purely Zoom meetings for for some of us. And, and I remember feeling really isolated at that time too. And when I take a step back and I think about it though, I was in quarantine with my husband, my two children, and then we still had like our babysitter kind of coming over yeah. to help with Zoom school. So yeah. really my bubble was more than just me. And I think about those of us who were completely isolated, like yeah. living by themselves and maybe just like have a pet at most, right? And oh, yeah, that, that, that range of, of that loneliness and isolation and desolation that came with it runs really deep and broad. So yeah, that's exciting. And that's available for pre-order. Yes. As if one book wasn't enough, you also have a poetry collection coming out called No Neutral This Fall as well. Mm-hmm. And so what's that collection about?
0: Yeah, uh, these are poems that I think really come out of a more activist mindset and sensibility. Uh, it took me a long time to write about the Atlantis class shooting because it was just too much, yeah. I think. Yeah. But there is a long poem that opens the book that is about just the reflection of that moment of um, the shootings and and. What that did, I think, for my identity as an Asian American woman, like how that was shattered, <laughs> you know, any yeah. any sort of fantasy of belonging or fitting in. I think that was a big moment for me. And there are other poems in the collection that deal with historic moments and racism. Hmm. Uh, so that is a big part of the book. But I think that I was also thinking quite a bit about voice in this book uh, as I'm kind of working towards a more kind of like authentic, natural voice, you know, much of my early work was very, uh, I think, aesthetic. It engaged with philosophy and ideas. And so in this way, it may not have always felt that me and my perspective uh, were in these poems, even though they were kind of buried or hidden. And I think through writing the podcast, 10,000 Things, it's really influenced my ability to be more direct in the poems. And this idea of like no neutral, when I started doing podcasting, I, I work with a wonderful editor who has helped me, I think, so much in understanding and deepening my sense of voice. And we used to talk about voice and in just like very, very general and abstract terms. And we talked about this idea of like a neutral voice. What is neutral voice when you are on public radio? And what does that sound or feel like? And I think in actuality, as I've come to kind of understand it better, Neutral voice is maybe like a kind of performative casualness. (laughs) Is kind of you know like the aspiration, and I I think that you know for me this trying to grappling with this idea of what is neutral voice for me as an Asian American woman who cannot literally perform like white male public radio voice. What is neutral voice going to be for me? Right, and not just this performative casualness, but actually. This feeling of being able to be myself fully um, and to be expressive in the vulnerability and the emotions. And so this book is actually a lot.
2: And that was our conversation. We got cut off in a weird way. So we didn't get a chance to do speed round or any of the thank yous. Um, I think, as you heard, Ginny is an amazing force and an amazing character. One, I, I just. I walked away from our discussion feeling extremely inspired. I learned a lot from her. I had very little knowledge of what a poet's journey could be coming into this talk today. I think, you know, my my idea of poets are people that create poetry, maybe publish books every now and then, which are things that she definitely does. But as she talks about expanding her art into different formats like comics, and as she even starts to bring that into storytelling through other mediums like podcasts. I think that Shani truly is just beginning her journey in many, many ways. And I'm excited to see what she has coming up next. We talked a little bit about her future projects, which we will definitely include in the show notes, everything from her two books launching this fall, Less Desolate and No Neutral, as well as a project that we didn't really get into too much, but we'll bring her back for another chat. Um, she has a microdosing guide coming out sometime next year as well. So there's a lot of exciting things on the horizon for her. And I hope you did enjoy our conversation as much as I did today. We'll talk to you guys again soon. And that's our show.
1: Like what you heard? Please subscribe, leave a review and a five-star rating on your favorite podcasting platform.
2: Now more than ever, people need to be hearing these stories. Please share our show with a friend or three.
1: Want to learn more or got something to share? Visit modmypod.com or email us, hi mom, at modmypod.com.
2: You can also follow us on Instagram and Twitter at modminpod. We'd love to hear from you.
1: That's it for now. I've been Roman Segel, And I'm still Sharon Lee Tony. Remember, we're all modern minorities out there.
2: We'll talk to you soon.